0: Chapter 15 John Berridge, The Ministry Every student of nature knows well that some of God's creatures are curiously strange-looking and bizarre. There are birds, like the toucan, that have bills of such enormous size that we cannot understand how they are used. There are animals, like the mandrill baboon, marked with such brilliant blue and red colors that we are somewhat at a loss to explain their purpose. Yet they are all the work of an all-wise creator. Our Father made them all. Not one of them could have been made better. Each and all, we need not doubt, is perfectly adapted for the place in creation that it was intended to fill. Thoughts such as these come across my mind when I survey the character of John Beridge, Vicar of Everton. Never, probably, did the grace of God dwell in a vessel of such uniquely tempered clay there was a strange tone of quaintness in his mental character that seemed to crop out and bubble up on every occasion. He was continually saying odd things and using odd illustrations to express his meaning. I don't for a moment think that he was an intentional joker of jokes or really wanted to set people laughing, but his mind was so curiously made up that he couldn't help putting things in a strange way. In vain his friends warned him of this and urged him to lay it aside. The poor old evangelist acknowledged his infirmity, responding that he had been born with a fool's cap on, and that a fool's cap was not as easily taken off as a nightcap. As much as he fought to keep down this enemy, it was never completely subdued in him. Odd things, he said, come from me as abruptly as croaking from a raven. The habit of quaintness was bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. It stuck to him as closely as his skin, and it never left him until he was laid in the grave. Quaintly he thought, and quaintly he spoke. Quaintly he preached, and quaintly he wrote. Quaintly he lived, and quaintly he died. In this aspect I fully admit that he was a beacon to be avoided, and not an example to be followed. However, while I admit that Beridge was painfully quaint and odd, I don't at all agree with Robert Southey's remark that he was a buffoon as well as a fanatic. This judgment is unreasonably severe. The twenty-six sermon outlines that his biographer has published contain abundant proof that the vicar of Everton never deliberately prepared light-hearted foolishness for the pulpit. On the contrary, with one or two minor exceptions, there is a conspicuous absence of anything that could create a smile. The reader of these outlines will find them very simple, very full of Scripture, very spiritual, and very evangelical. He will find in them, no doubt, nothing very deep or profound, nothing very remarkable or original, but he will always find man pictured in his true colors and put in his right place, and Christ magnified, glorified, and exalted on every page. If the reader of the outlines expects to find anything foolish, joking or absurd, or any funny anecdotes or ridiculous illustrations, he will be utterly and entirely disappointed. I would like those who belittle poor Beridge as a mere pulpit jester to carefully read over the one hundred pages in which Whittingham has recorded the remains of the good man's preaching. If these pages do not cause such people to change their opinion very considerably, I will be much surprised. They will probably agree with me that if the composer of such sermon outlines was a buffoon and a fanatic, it would do no harm to the Church of England if she had a few more such buffoons and fanatics among her clergy. In justice to Berridge, I give it as my own deliberate opinion that whatever quaintness there was in his sermons was strictly confined to the extemporaneous part of them, or to the illustrations that struck him on the spur of the moment. In any case, there is little or no trace of it in his written outlines. A man like Beridge, of great natural genius, and with a strong sense of the ludicrous, with his mind full of Aristophanes and Hudibras, might certainly be lightly judged if he sometimes said some odd things in his sermons. The excitement of seeing a great multitude hanging on his words was undoubtedly great. The concern to say what would engage and awaken was undoubtedly overwhelming. It is no surprise that he sometimes broke away from the outlines of his sermon and said things in the heat of his zeal that in calmer moments he might condemn. One thing, at any rate, is very clear from the remains of his preaching, and that is that he was a methodical preacher. If he did occasionally break over the fence and let odd sayings fall, he managed to get back into the road and was sooner or later marching along in good order. After all, I dare to think that people are often far too critical in their judgment of preachers. Much allowance should always be made for those who, like Beridge, are constantly preaching in rural districts to uneducated congregations. None but those who have preached for many years in such districts can have the least idea of the preacher's difficulties. There is a gulf between his mind and the minds of his hearers of which few have even the smallest understanding. How to get them to understand and grasp what we are saying is the great problem that has to be solved. Their standard of taste is not that of Oxford or Cambridge. Things that sound coarse and improper and unrefined to a trained mind and a well educated ear do not sound so to them. Their first and foremost need is to understand what the preacher is talking about. He who can make poor farmers and labourers understand what he says is a preacher deserving of the highest praise the people care nothing for fine abstract ideas and rhetorical figures they only care to hear what they can carry away now this i believe was precisely the thing that beridge never forgot his great aim was to make his hearers understand and to attain that aim he sacrificed everything if he made them smile he also made them weep if he excited them he did not let them go to sleep. If he broke the rules of taste and made them laugh, he also succeeded in breaking hard hearts and making them repent. All honour be to him for his boldness. It's a thousand times better for people to smile and be converted, than to look stiff and gloomy and sleepy in their pews and remain dead in trespasses and sins. I do not defend Beridge's antics and violations of good taste. I only say that those who run him down and depreciate him because of his quaintness would do well to remember that he did what many do not. He awakened and converted souls. Thousands of correct, smooth, prim, and proper clergymen are creeping through this world who never broke a rule of style in the pulpit, never told an anecdote, never used a common illustration, and never raised a smile. They have their reward. Their educated friends and relations admire them, and the world praises them, but they never pierce a conscience, never frighten a sinner, never build up a saint, never pull down a single stone of the devil's kingdom, and never save a soul. Give me the man who, like John Beridge, may commit many mistakes and offend many critical ears, yet reaches hearts and helps to fill heaven. Those who want to form a correct idea of the notably quaint workings of Berridge's mind must turn from the outlines of his sermons to his other remaining writings. These writings consist of a collection of hymns called Zion's Songs, a prose work entitled The Christian World Unmasked, and a selection of private letters to friends. I will leave the hymns alone. The vicar of Everton was no more a poet than Cicero or Julius Caesar and although the doctrine of his hymns is very sound, the poetry of them is very poor. The Christian World Unmasked is a dialogue between two imaginary characters about the way of salvation. It contains much that is direct and clear, but it is written mainly in such an unrefined style that it is not likely to be widely useful. The letters to private friends are excellent, and they are worth all the rest of Whittingham's volume put together. From these and the Christian world, I will now select a few specimens of Berridge's quaintness. I have spoken a good deal about it, and it is only right and fair to let the reader and listener see and hear what it was like. Let us hear how Berridge speaks of human nature. Nature lost her legs in paradise, and hasn't found them since, nor has she any will to come to Jesus. The way is steep and narrow, full of self-denials and crowded with stumbling blocks. She cannot like it, and when she does come, it is with much complaining. Moses is obliged to flog her soundly and make her heart ache before she casts a mournful look on Jesus. She once cherished this Jewish lawgiver, was properly married to him, and sought to please him by her works, and he seemed to be a compassionate husband. Now, however, he's grown to such a harsh tyrant that she cannot bear him. When she takes a wrong step, his mouth is always full of cursing, and his resentment is ruthless. No amount of weeping or promise of change will appease him. Let's hear Berridge discuss the writing by Samuel Puffendorf entitled The Whole Duty of Man According to the Law of Nature. The whole duty of man was sent abroad with a good intent, but has failed of its purpose, as all such teaching always will. Morality has not thrived since its publication, and it never will thrive unless it is founded wholly upon grace. The heathen, for lack of this foundation, could do nothing. They spoke some noble truths, but they spoke to people with withered hearts and sinful desires. They were like guideposts that show a road but cannot help a handicapped person down the road, yet many of them preached higher morals than are often taught by their modern friends. In their own way, they were skillful fishermen, but they fished without the gospel bait, so could catch no fish. After they had toiled long in vain, we take up their fishing rods. We dream of more success, even though we don't have even half their skill. God has shown how little human wisdom and strength can do to bring about reformation. Reason has explored the moral path, planted it with roses, and fenced it all around with motives, but all in vain. Let us hear Berridge again. People are treated rightly when the Bible is read and they are called by their proper name of miserable sinners. However, in sermons they are complimented on the dignity of their earthly, carnal, devilish natures. They are flattered with a princely will and power to save themselves, and they are embellished with a robust load of works. Justification by faith, the jewel of the gospel covenant, the groundwork of the Reformation, And the glory of the British Church is now derided as a poor, old, meagre aspect that might satisfy the uneducated or weak, but will not save a proud lawyer or a crude nobleman. The covenant of grace, though executed legally by Jesus, purchased by his life and death, and written and sealed with his blood, is considered to be of no value until ratified by Moses. Paul declares that we can lay no other foundation beside that which is laid. Christ Jesus 1 Corinthians 3:11 However people are growing wise above that which is written in the bible and they want two foundations for their hopes they want to add their imagined merit to the meritorious life and death of Christ if an angel would visit our earth and proclaim such a kind of gospel as is often pushed from the press and pulpit even though he preached morality with most angelic power and did so until his wings dropped off he would never turn one soul to god nor produce a single grain of true morality that comes from a love of god and seeks only his glory here's another sample from john beridge once i went to jesus as a vain fool and was impressed with myself imagining that if he were something so was i if jesus had merit so did i i used him as a healthy man will use a walking staff just lean an ounce upon it. But now He is my entire crutch. I can't take one step without Him. He's my all, as He should be if He is to be my Savior, and He urges me to cast all my care on Him. My heart can have no rest unless it leans wholly upon Jesus, and then it feels His peace. But I am apt to leave my resting place, and when I wander away from it, my heart will quickly stir up trouble some sinful attitude now begins to boil, or some concern gladly troubles me, or some empty pleasure wants to please me, or some deadness or lightness creeps upon my spirit, and sweet communion with my Saviour is withdrawn. When these thorns stick in my flesh, I don't try as before to pick them out with my own needle. I now carry all my sins to Jesus, casting every care on Him His work is to save, and my privilege is to look to Him for help. If evil tempers arise, I go to Him as some demoniac. If spiritual deadness creeps upon me, I go to Him as a paralytic. If overindulgence comes, I go to Him as a maniac. If spiritual darkness clouds my vision, I go to Him as a blind Bartimaeus. When I pray, I always go to Him as a leper, crying as Isaiah did. Unclean, unclean. Let us hear what Berridge wrote in a letter to John Newton, dated October 18, 1771. The foulest stain and greatest foolishness in our nature is pride. Yet this base hedgehog so rolls himself up in his bristly coat that we can seldom get a sight of his claws. Pride is the root of unbelief. People cannot submit to the righteousness of Christ, and pride clings to them like leprosy to the skin. No clear practice of ploughing and cultivating will clear the ground of pride. The vile weed will be sure to spring up again with the next rain. This diabolical sin has brought more scourges on my back than anything else. Pride is of such a deceptive nature that I don't know how to combat it. I hate it and love it. I quarrel with it, and I embrace it; I dread it, yet I allow it to lie in my heart. Pride is an inhabitant for life; it has such an amazing appetite that it can feed both on grace and garbage. It will be as warm and snug in a monastery as in a palace. It will be as much delighted with a fine prayer as with a profane curse. Let's hear what Beridge says in a letter to Samuel Wilkes dated August 16, 1774. Sitting peacefully on the beach is very pleasant after a stormy voyage, but I imagine that you will find it more difficult to walk closely with Jesus in the calm than during a storm, in easy circumstances than in difficulties. A Christian never falls asleep in the fire or in the water, but grows drowsy in the sunshine. We love to nestle but cannot make a nest in a hard bed. God has given you good abilities. This, of course, will make you respected by men of business, and will tempt you at times to admire yourself, thus bringing the rod of correction upon your back. Sharp genius, like a sharp knife, often makes a wrong gash and cuts a finger instead of food. We scarcely know how to turn our backs on admiration, even though it comes from the vain world. However, a kick from the world does believers less harm than a kiss. I believe that a main part of your trial will lie here. When you are tempted to think proudly of yourself and spread your feathers like a peacock, remember that fine parts in themselves are like the fine wings of a butterfly that embellish the moth and grub underneath. Remember, too, that one grain of godly grace is of more worth than a hundred thousand heads Full of wit, or of philosophical, theological, or commercial science. Let us hear what he writes on March twenty three, seventeen seventy, to Lady Huntingdon about the marriage of ministers. Before I parted with honest G, I cautioned him much against petticoat snares. He has burned his wings already. Surely he will not imitate a foolish gnat. And hover again about the candle. If he should fall into a sleeping lap like Samson, he will soon need a flannel nightcap and a rusty chain to hold him down like a chained Bible to the pulpit. There's no trap as mischievous to the field preacher as marriage, and it's laid for him at every hedge corner. Matrimony has quite maimed poor Charles Wesley, and might have spoiled John Wesley and George Whitefield if a wise master had not graciously sent them a pair of ferrets dear george has now got his liberty again and he will escape well if he's not caught by another hook eight or nine years ago having been grievously tormented with housekeeping i truly had thought of looking out for a jezebel myself but it seemed highly needful to ask advice of the lord so kneeling down on my knees before a table with a bible between my hands i asked the lord to give me a direction. I may add that Jeremiah 16.2 settled the question, to Berridge's satisfaction in the negative. In another letter, Berridge says, A man may be as naturally meek as the lamb, as naturally kind as the spaniel, as naturally cheerful as the lark, and as naturally modest as the owl, but these things are not salvation. No sweet, humble heavenly spirits, no saving graces, are found except from the cross. In still another letter, Beridge says, A Smithfield fire would unite the sheep of Christ and frighten the goats away, but when the world ceases to persecute the sheep, they begin to fight each other. Indeed, the worst part of the sheep is in his head, which is not half as good as a calf's head, and with this they are ever butting at each other in another letter, he said, I told my brother Mr. Henry Venn that he didn't need to fear being hanged for stealing sheep when he only whistles the sheep into a better pasture and doesn't meddle with either the flock or the fleece. I'm sure he cannot sink much lower in esteem, for he has lost his character honestly by preaching law and gospel without pretense. The scoffing world makes no other distinction between him and me than between Satan and Beelzebub. We have both got tufted horns and cloven feet. Only I am considered the more impudent devil of the two. I leave the subject of John Berridge's unusualness here. It would be easy to provide many more examples like those I have given, but I have probably said enough to give my readers and listeners some idea of the somewhat unusual workings of the good vicar of Everton's mind. I don't pretend to defend his irregular sayings. As quaint as his sayings were, a Christian reader or listener will seldom fail to discern in them a deep vein of common sense, cleverness, and wisdom. They were just the kind of thing that grabs and keeps the attention of rural hearers. While we might admit that he didn't always communicate in the typical ministerial way, let's not forget that hundreds of preachers err in an excess of correct dullness and never do good to a single soul. I would be sorry to leave on my listener's mind the impression that quaintness was the main characteristic of the good vicar of Everton. There were other prominent features in his character that were quite as remarkable as his quaintness, but which his detractors have found it convenient to forget. There were many great and fine points about this old evangelist that deserved to be remembered and that all who love pure and undefiled religion will know how to appreciate. I will briefly mention a few of them, and then draw my account of him to a conclusion. Berridge was a man of deep humility. That queen of all the graces that adorned Whitefield and Grimshaw so remarkably was a prominent feature in his character. No man could be more sensible of his infirmities than he was and no one could speak of himself more disparagingly than he did. In seventeen seventy three, he said, Ten years ago, I hoped to be something long before this time, and I seemed to be in a promising way. However, a clearer view of the spiritual wickedness in my heart and of the spiritual demands of God's laws has forced me daily to cry, Oh, what a wretched man that I am! God be merciful to me, a sinner! I am now sinking from a poor something into a vile nothing, and I want to be nothing so that Christ may be all. I am creeping down the ladder from self delight to self abhorrence, and the more I abhor myself, the more I must hate sin, which is the cause of that abhorrence. As the heart is more washed, we grow more sensible of its remaining defilement, just as we are more displeased with a single spot on a new coat. Than with a hundred stains on an old one, the more wicked men grow, the less ashamed they are of themselves, and the more holy men grow, the more they learn to abhor themselves. John Beridge was also a man who gloried in our Lord Jesus Christ in all his preaching, speaking, and writing, he delighted to make much of him in one of his letters he wrote. At one time, I was aware of my lameness, but didn't know that Christ was to be my whole strength as well as my righteousness. I saw that his blood could purge away the guilt of sin, but I thought I had some natural might against the power of sin. Accordingly, I laboured to cut away my own corruptions and pray away my own evil. But I laboured in the fire at length. God has shown me that John Beridge cannot drive the devil out of himself but Jesus Christ, blessed be His name, must say to the legion, Luke 8, 26-33, Come out. I see that faith alone can purify the heart as well as purify the conscience, and that Christ is worthy to be my all in everything, in wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1, 30. For another thing, Berridge was a man of remarkable kindness and self-denial. No man possibly ever carried on Christ's work with more thoroughly unselfish views. Whether at home or abroad, he was always giving and rarely receiving, and he went through all his immense labours without charge. Houses and barns were rented for preaching, lay preachers were maintained in all directions, and his own travelling expenses were paid for from his own salary. Whenever he preached in a cottage, he always left a little money for the use of it. During his itinerant preaching, he actually spent thousands of dollars in this way. Cases of distress and suffering always met with generous help from him. His entire income, both private and professional, was annually spent in doing good, and even his family plate was sold to buy clothes for his itinerant preachers. As to his own habits at home they were simple in the extreme. He wrote to Rev. Shirley, who was to supply his pulpit once when he was away from home, You must eat what is set before you and be thankful. I get hot food only once a week for myself, namely on Saturday, but because you are an honorable man, I have ordered two hot meals to be prepared each week for you. Use what I have just as your own. I make no feasts, but save all I can so I can give all I can. I have never yet been worth a dollar at the year's end, nor do I desire it. As to his provisions abroad, when itinerating in the eastern counties, he says in another letter, I am afraid that my weekly circuit would not suit a London or Bath preacher. Long rides and miry roads in freezing weather, cold houses to sit in with very moderate fuel." and three or four children roaring or rocking about you. Coarse food and lumpy beds to lie on that are too short for the feet, with stiff blankets like boards for a covering. Rise at five in the morning to preach, at seven breakfast on weak tea, at eight, mount a horse with boots never cleaned, and then ride home praising God for all mercies. Beridge was a man of uncommon intelligence, good sense and wisdom there was never a more thorough mistake than to suppose that he, any more than Romayne, was a mere ranting, weak-headed fanatic. A careful examination of his writings will show them to be filled with deep, thoughtful, and far-sighted remarks. His critique of William Cowper's poems, his letters about Lady Huntingdon's college at Travecca, his well-balanced statements of some of the most disputed points in the Calvinistic controversy, and his sensible treatment of enthusiasts under his ministry are excellent evidences of this feature in his character. I don't know of many letters that contain more wisdom and more advice for a young minister about a sermon than one that Whittingham has included at the end of his collection. Among other things, John Beridge wrote When you begin your ministry, begin by clearly declaring the innumerable corruptions of the hearts of your audience. Moses will lend you a knife, which may be often sharpened at his grindstone. Speak boldly about the universal sinfulness of people's natures, the darkness of the mind, the perverseness of the will, the troubles of the temper, and the worldliness and carnality of the emotions. Speak of the evil of sin in regard to its nature, in its rebellion against God as our sovereign, in its ingratitude to God as our lawgiver. And in its contempt both of his authority and love. Declare the evil of sin in its consequences, bringing all our sicknesses, pains, and snares along with all the evils we feel and all the evils we fear. Clearly declare the spirituality of the law and its extent, reaching to every thought, word, and action, and declaring every transgression, whether by omission or commission, that is deserving of death. Declare man's utter helplessness to change his nature or make peace with God. When your hearers are deeply affected with these things, which is often seen by the hanging down of their heads, then preach Christ. Lay open the Saviour's almighty power to soften the hard heart and give it repentance, to bring forgiveness to the broken heart, to convey a spirit of prayer to the prayerless heart, to communicate holiness to the filthy heart, and to bring faith to to the unbelieving heart let them know that all the treasures of grace are kept in Jesus Christ for the use of the poor needy sinner and that he is full of love as well as of power tell them that he turns no beggar from his gate but compassionately receives all who come tell them that he loves to bless them and he gives all his blessings freely here you must wave the gospel flag and magnify the savior supremely Boldly teach that His blood can wash away the foulest sins, and His grace can subdue the mightiest corruptions. Urge the people to seek His grace, to seek it immediately, to seek it diligently, and to seek it constantly. Inform them that all who seek in this way will assuredly find the salvation of God. John Beridge was a man of extraordinary courage and boldness. He was one of those who could say with David, I will speak of your testimonies before kings and not be ashamed. Psalm 119.46. In doing his master's business and delivering his master's message, he never stopped for a moment by fear of personal danger or regard for the opinion of the world. Neither bishops, judges, nor parsons intimidated him. At an early period of his evangelical ministry, he took his line, and he never swerved from that line. The occasion of when he first resolved never to be afraid is wonderfully described in the following story, which I take from the Churchman's Monthly Penny Magazine, from 1852. In one of the villages in which he was known as a preacher of the new doctrines, which were then beginning to excite a great sensation in different parts of England, he was exposed, when passing through it, to the shouts and insults of the mob, to an extent that frequently irritated his excitable spirit. This village was composed nearly exclusively of a long winding street, and as can be seen in many similar hamlets in England and elsewhere, was surrounded on one side by a narrow lane, which, jutting off at one end, joined it again by a much wider circuit than that made by the street at the other. On one day in which Berridge was about to pass through this village, his heart cringed within him in anticipation of the rough reception he would certainly meet with from the intolerant inhabitants. He felt as if he could not encounter it, and accordingly turned into the narrow lane of which we have spoken just at the moment when a pig-driver, whom he knew, entered the street with his noisy charge. It so happened that they met again at the far end of the village. When the pig driver, who not only knew Berridge, but also knew his principles, and knew the truth, looked up in his face with a most peculiar expression and said, So you are ashamed of it? The saying went to his heart. Yes, Berridge replied, I have been ashamed of it. I resolve in the strength of God to be ashamed of it no more, but from this moment on to press after it, firm, unto the end. This was a resolution that was undertaken by a resolute mind in the fear of God. And was perhaps never more faithfully carried out in the future progress of a long and devoted life. Last but not least, Beridge was a man of deep acquaintance with Christian experience and tender sympathy with the people of God. Those who imagine that he was a rough, offensive, ranting, outdoor preacher, always full of jests and jokes and levity, and always dwelling on elementary truths, know very little of the good man's character. Let them read or listen to the following letters carefully, and observe how the itinerant evangelist of Everton could write to his friends. The first of the three was written to a friend on the occasion of his wife's death, and can be found in Whittingham's volume. The other two have come to me from private hands and have never been printed before. Everton, March 26, 1771 Dear Brother, I have been informed of the loss of your dear wife. She has now put off mortality and has become immortal. Can this grieve you? Oh, that I was where she now is, safe landed on that peaceful shore where pilgrims meet to part no more. She was once a mourning sinner in this poor wilderness, but she's now a glorified saint in Zion. The Lord has become her everlasting light, and the days of her mourning are ended. Does this trouble you? She was once afflicted with bodily pains and weakness, encompassed with cares, and harassed with a crowd of anxious, needless fears. But she has now arrived at her Father's house, and Jesus has wiped away all tears from her eyes. He has freed her in a moment from all pains, cares, fears, and needs. Will this distress you? You've not lost your wife, but she has only left you for a few moments. She's left an earthly husband to go home to her heavenly father. She expects your arrival there soon to join the hallelujahs for redeeming love. Are you still weeping? Shame on you, brother! Are you weeping because your wife can weep no more? Are you weeping because she's eternally happy? Are you weeping because she's joined to that assembly where all our kings and priests, are you weeping because she is daily feasting on heavenly manna and drinking new wine every hour in her Father's kingdom? Are you weeping because she is now where you desire to be and long to be eternally? Are you weeping because she's singing and singing sweet anthems to her God and your God? Oh, shameful weeping! Jesus has brought your bride triumphantly home to his kingdom. To draw your soul more fervently there. He's broken up your cistern in order to bring you nearer and to keep you closer to the ever flowing fountain. Jesus has caused a moment's separation in order to sever your affections from the creature. He has torn a wedding string from your heart to set it bleeding more freely and longing more intensely for Himself. Hereafter, you will see how gracious the Lord has been in calling a beloved wife home in order to bind you more effectually to Himself. Remember that sorrow is a safe companion for a pilgrim who walks much astray until his heart is well broken. May all your tears flow in a heavenly channel, and every sigh carry your soul to Jesus. May the God of all consolation comfort you through life and in death grant you a triumphant entrance to His glorious kingdom. So praise your friend and brother in the gospel of Christ, John Beridge. Everton, September 14, 1773 Dear Sir, I received your kind letter, and I thank you for it. You don't need anything except an opened eye to see the glory of Christ's redemption. He must give it, and He will bestow it. When it is most for his glory and your advantage. Even if you had Daniel's holiness, Paul's zeal, John's love, Mary Magdalene's repentance, and I wish you had them all, all of that together would not give you any claim to a pardon. You must at last receive salvation as a ruined sinner, even as the thief on the cross received it. No goodness or works of your own can give you a right to forgiveness you must come to Jesus for it, weary and heavy laden. If you are afflicted for sin and desirous of being delivered from its guilt and power, then no past iniquities in your life or present corruptions of your heart will keep you from His pardoning mercy. If we are truly seeking salvation by Jesus, we will be inclined, as we are really obligated to do, to seek after holiness. Remember, That holiness is the walk to heaven, and Christ is the way to God. When you seek for pardon, you must go completely out of your walk, whether it's good or bad or religious, and look only to Him who is the way. You must look to Him as a miserable sinner, justly condemned by His law, a branch for the fires of hell, and look to be plucked from the fire by His abundant and sovereign grace. You have just as much worthiness for a pardon as the thief on the cross had, which is none at all. In your best condition, you will never have more than that. A pardon was freely given to him upon asking for it freely, and it was given instantly because no room was left for delays. A pardon is as ready for you as for him, when you can ask for it as he did, with self-loathing and condemnation. But the proper times of bestowing the pardon are kept in Jesus' own hand. He makes His mercy clear to the heart when it will most glorify His grace and benefit the sinner. Only continue asking for mercy. Seek it only through the blood of the cross, without any thought of your own worthiness, and that blood in due time will be sprinkled on your conscience, and then you will cry, Abba, Father. Give my kindest love to my dear brother Mr Romaine may the lord continue his life and usefulness kind respects and christian salutation to mrs olney grace and peace be with you both and with your affectionate and indebted servant john berridge everton november 7 1786 dear sir i received your kind letter along with your present i thank you for the present as being a token of your respect, and accompanied, I notice, with your daily prayers for me, which I value more than material presence. May the Lord bless you and lift up the light of His countenance upon you, and may He give you a sweet enjoyment of His peace. I have previously discovered that Christian people who live in the dark, fearing and doubting, yet waiting on God, usually have a very happy death. They are kept humble, hungering, and praying, And the Lord clears up their proof of being His at length in a last sickness, if not before, and they go off with hallelujahs. From what I know of you, and from the account you give of yourself, I have no doubt of the safety of your condition. Yet do not rest here, but seek further. Two things should be carefully attended to by all upright people one is the evidence of the Word, and the other is the evidence or witness of the Spirit. The Word says, All who believe are justified from all things, Acts 13.39. I ask then, do you not place your entire dependence on Jesus Christ for salvation? Do you not earnestly accept of Jesus Christ in all His work, and are you not daily seeking Him to teach you and rule you as well as to pardon you? Then you are certainly a believer. And as such are justified in God's sight from all your sins according to the plain declaration of God's Word. Let this encourage you to seek confidently for the evidence of the Spirit and to proclaim that justification to your heart. The evidence of the Word is given to lift up the heart in a season of doubts and fears, and the evidence of the Spirit comes to scatter those fears. Remember also that salvation does not depend on the strength of faith. But on the reality of it. In the Gospels, Jesus often rebukes weak faith, but he never rejects it. Weak faith brings only little comfort, yet is as much entitled to salvation as strong faith. I have had much of my affliction this summer. I never once left my parish, and never travelled further in it than to my church. Through God's mercy, I am somewhat better, and when I am alone and have a Bible before me, I am composed and comfortable. Yet I am so weak that I am hardly able to endure visits. Give my love to Mr. G, and tell him that from first to last he has been the friend of my heart. I send my kind respects to your spouse. Grace and peace be with you both, and with your affectionate servant, John Berridge. I enclose my account of the good old vicar of Everton with one remark. The man who could write such letters as these is not one who should be lightly esteemed. John Beridge is a minister who has never been rightly valued on account of his one besetting infirmity. The one dead fly in his ointment Ecclesiastes 10, 1, has made the church ignore his many gifts and graces. Yet he was a man of whom the world was not worthy. Hebrews eleven thirty eight. Good judges of men such as John Thornton, Lady Huntington, John Wesley, Henry Venn, John Fletcher, John Newton, Roland Hill, Charles Simeon, and Thomas Jones of Creton were all agreed about him, and they all held him in honor. Let us reform our judgment of the good man and cast our prejudices aside. Whatever some may say, we can rest assured that there were few greater, better, holier, and more useful ministers in the 18th century than old John Beridge